Hi folks, this is Grounded, stories of refugee resettlement in Vermont. I'm your host, Tilden Reamer-Leach. In this episode, you'll hear stories like... I didn't have that opportunity, I didn't... I had some of my childhood, but not a certain part of it, um, um, due to the fact that we were all over the place. Um, so I, I finally said, you know, I want my life. I want my life, you know, and I want to be, uh, I want to feel free when I live it. So in the last episode, we talked about what refugee resettlement looks like on a national level. The multi-year process that refugees have to go through to resettle in the U.S., the agencies and social services that help refugees integrate into Vermont, and the changes to the resettlement system under the current administration. Today, we are really focusing in on people's stories right here in Vermont. What is it like to leave your home and everything you know, fleeing for your life, and move to a new country with different laws, different customs, and really different ways of interacting with the world on a daily basis. You know, like, what what were refugees expecting life was going to be like in the U.S.? And how are those expectations met or maybe not met at all? And finally, how have refugees' feelings of dependence or independence changed over the years living here in Vermont. What I've learned over the course of doing this research is that refugees are searching for a place where they can feel safe, have a roof over their heads, and are free to live their lives the way that they choose. It's important to realize that there is no one universal refugee The only thing refugees have in common is the loss of home. We will hear three different stories from refugees, or I should say former refugees, now U.S. citizens, about what it was like to come off the plane and land in Vermont and try to start a new life here. And then we will uncover some of the common challenges that refugees face in trying to integrate into Vermont. My name is Ismahan Somo, okay. and most people they call me Honey. Like if you go my neighborhood and ask for my name, no one knows who the person is. But if you say Honey, they know me who I am. I don't know why. Honey. Yeah. I met Honey at her house one day during a huge snowstorm this past winter. The streets were covered in snow, and I was actually really worried I wasn't gonna make it there um, at all. Um, When I finally got to the door and rang the doorbell, it was one of her three daughters that answered, and they were all already home because school had been canceled that day. I sat in their living room and chatted with Honey 
while her three daughters sat around us um, looking on their phones and like peering over at me while we talked. Honey is from Tanzania and her then-husband had fled Somalia due to the long civil war there. They lived in refugee camps in Kenya for years until they were granted refugee status to resettle in the U.S. When they were finally approved to come to America, Honey had, just two weeks earlier, given birth to her third child, which complicated their paperwork and put a long delay on their arrival. When they finally arrived in Burlington... And it was the first day of snow. It was kind of funny, like, at the airport, it was kind of windy, blowing. We didn't have even jacket. We have like summer clothes. Mm-hmm. And these people from Vermont uh, refugees are like running to us with the jacket to cover us. I'm like, what? Why? Why is this? But I didn't realize it was winter outside, but the wind, the way it was blowing, like you can hear the wind. And then when we get out, it was kind of like white, everything is white. So we came home. It was kind of funny seeing the snow. Like we see the snow in a mountain, in you know, Africa, but we never like live and see the snow the way it is. So it was kind of fun to wake up in the morning and see the snow and we were like, is this a salt or something? But it had dump salt over. And this girl, Joseph, was telling us, he's like, no, that's a snow. It's a winter in Vermont. We're like, what is winter? He's like, you can go outside and look. So we went outside. We thought it was kind of dry. We never knew it was wet. We keep holding with no gloves and we're like, why it's freezing? <laughs> so it was kind of fun. We keep like play with it. Kids that were eating, they think it was something to eat. And they're like, no, maybe there is a dog pee on it. And we're like, what? People have dogs? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. We say, dog in the house? They're like, yeah, it's the key. We're like, we don't keep dog in the houses or something. We keep dog as a security dog, but not like as a pet to live with them. They're saying, no, here it's different. So it was kind of funny to learn, like, something new. Yeah. Oh, we didn't know even the dog would go out and pee on this no we didn't know that (laughs) or someone has a dog who didn't know that but it was kind of fun thinking about what a shock it would be to arrive in vermont in the dead of winter and see so many trees and experience the quiet streets of vermont especially after the bustle of nairobi i wondered how the vermont refugee resettlement program helps people adjust in the first couple of weeks, especially when refugees are coming from so many different backgrounds and have had such varied life experiences. Amila, the director of the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program, had an answer. Yeah, Um, we have a very diverse team of case managers and um, employment counselors. So um, each a refugee individual or a family is connected with a case manager uh, soon, you know, they they meet them at the airport. So they're, they're the first face that they see and often they are from, you know, that from the same um, community, you know, uh, either, you know, Somali or Bhutanese. So they are, you know, they're met by, um, you know, someone who speaks their language and is from the same culture. Um, and, um, you know, in, in those first, 
couple weeks were very busy, you know, trying to uh, connecting people with, um, you know, services and uh, providing orientation and, you know, registering kids for school. Um, Even with this crucial initial support by VRRP and long-term support by the nonprofit Association of Africans Living in Vermont, which I'll talk about later in this episode, adjustment into life in Vermont can look very different for different people. Remember that unless refugees already have family living in the U.S., they don't really get much of a say in where they are resettled. Successful integration can depend on existing family members in the area, existing community networks, your educational background and English level, whether you're coming from a developed or developing country, the type of trauma you have experienced as a refugee, not to mention how your race and ethnicity shows up in the majority white state of Vermont. University of Vermont's professor Pablo Bose brings up many of these questions on the website for his research. How exactly do refugees fit into these landscapes? The question is about more than the capacity of towns and cities to absorb newcomers. It is equally about the types of social and spatial formations and identities that refugees must learn about and adjust to. Of special concern, therefore, are the ways in which refugees adjust to life in a predominantly white and semi-rural Vermont, especially those who are marked as racially religiously, or ethnically distinct. Dr. Bose is currently in the middle of conducting research on refugees' expectations for resettlement versus the realities they encounter. He has interviewed roughly 100 refugees and asked questions regarding transportation, housing, health care, employment, education, and civic integration. The results of his research have not been published yet, but I think they will likely echo some of the refugee experiences that you will hear in this episode. The next story we have today is from Amir, who currently works for the University of Vermont. Amir Muyazinovich, I'm a a business analyst at the College of Arts and Sciences Dean's Office. Amir first left his homeland when Serbia set out to ethnically cleanse Bosnian territory in April of 1992 by systematically removing all Bosnian Muslims, known as Bosniaks. His family was lucky to escape when they did. Many Bosniaks who stayed behind were driven into concentration camps where women and girls were systematically gang-raped and other civilians were tortured, starved, and murdered. Uh, I was born and raised in uh, Banja Luka, Bosnia, which is a northwest part of our country. Uh, Bosnia was a part of a bigger country called Yugoslavia and uh, uh, got into a little bit of a mess uh, in 1992. So in 1992, uh, my family decided to walk away from what uh, ended up being a three-and-a-half to four-year war, where a lot of people were killed uh, for not a lot of 
good reasons. Uh, we ended up uh, uh, going uh, uh, to Belgrade, Serbia, uh, sleeping there for a couple of nights and then uh, taking a bus through Hungary, uh, I want to say Slovenia, back to Croatia, so it's the other. Uh, Serbia is on the east of the Bosnia and Croatia is on the west of the Bosnia. Um, I, we had some family, uh, my uncle was there, uh, and we settled there for uh, about three years. Um, it, it was weird because, you know, uh, one day you were just in an elementary school finishing my, well, you don't call it elementary school here, you call it middle school, um, eighth grade. I was 15. Uh, it was like last two days of classes, I believe, like May 15th or so. Uh, and then I come home, and yes, I noticed stuff going on, but you know, I'm 15. There's puberty is like hitting me like shh. there's nothing that I, you know, don't think about, but I don't think about that. Um, so my father comes over and he said, half of our family, all the uh, women and children are leaving, uh, but uh, we decided to stay. I'm like, okay, cool. I love my town, you know, I yeah. love the life. I didn't know what's going to happen. Two hours later, he comes back, we're leaving too. Pack your bags. So we had maybe three or four suitcases of our life in him and left, which was really good because I uh, ended up. Uh, um, finding out that my father was on a list of, you know, people that were supposed to, they they were supposed to get rid of, and who knows what would happen to us. Um, the next day, our our apartment was broken into, and you know all that stuff. Anyways, um, a few of the uh, men of the family le uh, stayed, and they didn't have a great experience. But we're, we're not going to talk about that. Um, we spent three years in uh, Croatia. Um, then for a certain reason, we went to Germany, uh, and to Berlin, Germany. And uh, we stay, stayed there for three years, two. And um, uh, at the age of, uh, at this point, I was 19, 20. Um, German government said, okay, the war is over. It's been over for uh, two or three years. You have to go back home if you're 18, over 18 and single. We met the criteria. I have a twin brother, so um, we met the criteria and we had to leave. My parents stayed. Um, we went back to Bosnia. But the war wasn't over. By 1993, the UN declared that a number of Muslim enclaves were to be safe areas, protected by a contingent of UN peacekeepers. But attacks continued, despite NATO-initiated airstrikes. In 1995, Muslim enclaves were attacked, with an estimated 23,000 women, children, and elderly people put on buses and driven to Muslim-controlled territories while 8,000 battle-aged men were detained and slaughtered. It is with this backdrop that Amir and his brother returned to Germany. We were there for a year, and then uh, stuff happened in Kosovo, 
and Serbia, where the United States um, bombed Belgrade for certain reasons. And we kind of used that as an excuse to go back to Germany and apply to go somewhere else because we didn't see our future in Bosnia. Um, we ended up hiding in Germany until we got the paperwork done for, to get to the United States um, and uh, got here in 2000, January 31st, which was two days ago, 18 years from now. Yeah. It was, it was an experience. How did you end up in Vermont? Yes. Um, uh, uh, when you go through the process in the uh, embassy, uh, well, this was in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, um, they kind of asked you, uh, do you have any family or a sponsor? Uh, we had some family. Uh, we had two uncles here from my mother's side with their families here. They came in um, 94 and 97, I want to say, um, and uh, didn't have any relatives anywhere else. That was an experience in itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and then late that night arriving to Burlington, Vermont, uh, where uh, our uncles lived. What was the process like coming over to the states? Well, uh, the the process of when you when you get here, uh, it's it was a little weird. Um, they gave us first of all on our flight over, uh, you get a paid ticket. Obviously, you don't pay for it right away. But uh, what they do is uh, they give you kind of like a discredit that you pay, you have to pay off, mm -hmm. meaning building your credit history. So whatever our ticket was, maybe four or five hundred dollars at that time, we had to pay it off in next, I don't know, year. Um, uh, the other thing is that you get a plastic bag with, I want to say like refugee resettlement logo or something with all your documents and they tell you you get this in Germany you don't open it until you get to the you know customs agent they open it and they go through your paperwork like it's a plastic bag I mean <laughs> I can see what's inside <laughs> what do you mean so that that was weird um, uh, but I I don't know what happens then um, they go through the paperwork we got this um, I think we had a uh, a Bosnian passport with a, a visa. You were 18, 19 at the time? It was 2000, so no, I was 23. 23? 23. About my age right now. Yeah, yeah. cool. 23 with a lot of experience and uh, just barely finished high school because in, in, in Germany when you're over 18, uh, you're not allowed to uh, work as a refugee or go to school. So we kind of did nothing yeah. uh, while being there, unfortunately. So I, I had to uh, learn the language and go to school and work at the same time and kind of go through that. But it was a great experience, you know. And I can see myself, you know, I, I couldn't see myself then where I will be now, but I, you know, it's a, it's a good life that we have right now, so I'm happy. When you first came here at 23, what did you want for yourself here in the U.S.? The only thing that I wanted um, 
we applied to get to the United States um, and went through the process and I prayed to God to just go through the process and go to the United States because there was no plan B. Uh, when we went through that, I um, wanted to be free. Um, what that means is uh, um, I was uh, with my parents for a lot of my life. Um, n n this is not a bad thing, but uh, you know, uh, as a man growing up, as, as you grow up, you, you want to experience and you want to be independent. You want to have your own life, so to say, build it. I didn't have that opportunity. I didn't, I had some of my childhood, but not a certain part of it. Um, due to the fact that we were all over the place. Um, so I, I finally said, you know, I want my life. I want my life, you know, and I want to be, uh, I want to feel free when I live it. Uh, so not to be afraid speaking my own language and not to be afraid uh, going to mosque and pray. Uh, not to be afraid to voice my opinion in a different language by making mistakes by speaking that different language. Uh, when we were in Germany, they would look at us, they would hear us talk, there were, you know, faces, words exchanged, sometimes more than words exchanged. Uh, we would wait in line for, I mean, we, I was 18, 19, line for, you know, to go out in front of the club and they would just come in, you three, step away, you're not allowed. They didn't ask us what our names are, you know, what, you know, based on the color, based on the language. So we, uh, I didn't want to feel that way ever again. And I know if, if we were in Bosnia for a year, I felt that way there too, even though it's my country. I was still feeling like a refugee. And that was my goal. That was my, like, I, I want to have my own life where I, I'm not afraid to say or do anything, you know. And I think for the first three months here, it, I think the reality hit me, you know, you had to work. You didn't know the language, so what kind of work can you get when you don't know the language? Factory work. Um, so I ended up uh, working at uh, Burton Snowboards Factory, building snowboards, and uh, working the second shift from 4 to 2 a.m., um, waking up at 9, going to an English course, uh, making myself a sandwich, and going back to work for three months. And I was like, this is not what I signed up for. I mean, this is... But then it... It kind of like light bulb went on. It's like, okay, you need to learn this language. With the language, you can, you know, advance. While there are many ways to be considered self-sufficient, being economically independent is often a key aspect. As I heard in countless interviews, many refugees are really excited to work and contribute to the community. You know, they lived for years in refugee camps where they weren't allowed to work. And 
where there are very few educational opportunities. So many refugees really jump at the chance to start earning a living, and in the most cases, actually, it's a requirement. As Amila from the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program points out, there are many ways to to measure the success, um, you know, of um, you know how someone has integrated. But the federal government is looking at it through economic self-sufficiency, early economic self-sufficiency. And what that means, basically, is that um, all uh, employable adults aged 18 to 64 are working um, as soon as possible after arrival. And that their income basically... um, uh, exceeds the state the state standard, so they are no longer eligible to access public benefits. And our data shows that about you know eighty five to ninety percent of um, employable adults are considered self sufficient at the end of eight months, which is which yeah. is um, really amazing for any group. As Amila points out, no matter what an individual's hopes are for resettling in the U.S., the federal refugee resettlement system has certain expectations for refugees, no matter who they are. The most important of all is that refugees are deemed economically self-sufficient within a certain period of time. This means employment. Refugee families start working almost immediately upon their arrival. The article, African Women Refugee Resettlement, a Womanist Analysis, by Badiha Hafeji and Jean East, discusses the viewpoint of the federal government. Embedded in the Refugee Act of 1980 is a philosophy that increasingly views full and meaningful integration for all resettled refugees from the perspective of economic independence or competence. This conceptualization of resettlement as economic self-sufficiency is ubiquitous in the policy, even though the time frame and the role of financial independence for refugees have been controversial. And according to the federal government, economic independence is supposed to happen rather quickly. Over the years, due to limited funding, The reimbursement or eligibility period has been reduced from 36 months in 1988 to 8 months where it is today. While supportive programs may be continued, the assumption in these time reductions is that after 8 months, a refugee would be able to earn enough to support themselves or they must qualify for income assistance under the provisions of temporary assistance to needy families. In summary, Refugee policy is humanitarian in intent and yet is normed to American cultural standards and welfare policies that abhor dependence and promote self-sufficiency in economic terms. Some people argue that refugees receive too much government support, but that really wasn't the case for the people I interviewed. All of them wanted to be financially independent as soon as possible. You may remember Honey from Tanzania, who shared her story earlier. She actually works two jobs, one as a technician for a local company 
and also as a language interpreter for the Association of Africans Living in Vermont. Her days usually start before 6 a.m. The last thing she wants is to be on public assistance. Money. I love my job. I won't quit my job so I can be an assistant. I did not come to U.S. to live under assistance. No. I do everything for myself. I don't get a welfare or nothing. No. I pay the medical for my kid. And I'm single mom. I did not bring them to U.S. live like, oh, my mom is applying for food stamp. Oh, we did not get a food stamp. We don't have food. No. I don't want to teach my kid that. I want to teach my kid like to get out their education, get out their own job, and work for what they Asking for no, like, go get a easy money, no. There is no one type of career path for refugees. There are refugees who are medical experts back in their home country, as well as women who have never received formal education. For refugees who are highly educated, it can be hard to come to the U.S. with university degrees and work experience, but have it not count in the American system. Can you imagine how frustrating it must be to have been a chemist in your home country but have to start all over again in the U.S. as a janitor? Janelle Eli, who previously worked as an employment counselor for refugee families at the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program, speaks to the difficulties refugees face adjusting to this new reality. I think one really big adjustment for a lot of resettled refugees was actually taking jobs that were that they were overqualified for. So in Vermont, we had a lot of resettled refugees who were engineers in their home countries, who were medical professionals before they were for, forced to flee their homes. And so, of course, people who were doctors back home in a place like Iraq weren't able to get medical professional jobs in the United States. And so that was a really big adjustment for people because, of course, a lot of these professionals knew that they would eventually be able to recertify, but that it would probably take years. And so I ended up having to place refugees in jobs that they were really overqualified for. So, you know, um, maybe somebody who is an engineer would get a job at a car dealership helping to do cleaning there or would get a job at a restaurant or you know help get them a job at a chain store like a Best Buy or a Costco or something. Resettled refugees were super grateful for the jobs that they had. Mm -hmm. There there is no doubt about that and having Mm -hmm. their first job in the United States even if they were overqualified for it was still really valuable for them because it helped them build relationships, it helped them build the skill set that they needed in an American workplace, Um, it helped them earn money, of course, and gain experience. But I think that that was a really hard part for some of our really educated um, resettled refugees in Vermont. And this is not just a Vermont issue, this happens all over the United States. And how did their employment opportunities change over time? I had this really neat experience recently because, as I mentioned, I was an employment counselor for the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program in 2008 and 2009. Um, And, you know, a lot of people are getting their first jobs. They might be overqualified for them, but they did the jobs. They did them well. They were loyal, good employees. 
And I was recently in Vermont and I ran into some of my former clients. And eight oh. years later, seven, eight, nine years later, it's so it was so good to see how people have integrated into the community, how so much success they've had with their professions, with their English language acquisition, with being part of the community. You know, there were so many people I noticed who were business owners now, who were either wow. growing their own mushrooms to sell at the store, who had who were owning grocery stores in Burlington and Winooski. That was so neat to see because it was really a true testament to something we always say, which is that, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint, right? Like it takes time for people to really um, grasp on to the life they want. It takes time to build a new life in the United States. And coming back years later and seeing that people were really um, pursuing their dreams and had had a lot of success, success was incredible. of the government, self-sufficiency means economic independence. Often, in order to be considered self-sufficient within this short time frame, both parents of a refugee family have to seek employment. This gets tricky when, in many cultures, men's traditional role is that of sole breadwinner of the household. On top of that, many female refugees find it difficult to enter the workforce since in many countries, women don't receive formal education past grade school, and their traditional role is of being the homemaker. Shifts in family gender roles can be challenging for families to adjust to, especially with so much other cultural adjustment going on at the same time. I asked Mary O'Dale, a former employment counselor at the Refugee Resettlement Program, about this challenge. I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that can be really difficult for people, especially just depending on um, what culture they're coming from. Um, in a lot of cultures, it's seen as, I guess, I don't know what the exact word would be, but um, the male head of household is really the person that feels like he's the only one that should be working, and it can be a real source of contention or something that makes him very upset if his wife has to go to work as well, um, just from that cultural standpoint. So that's something that is often a conversation of just, um, like you said, a lot of times people are required to go to work regardless of whether they're male or female or what status they held in their home before. So that's, that's very often a conversation that we have of just realizing, hey, let's work on a budget and think about what this looks like and let's see if it's feasible for one person to stay home and a lot of the times it's not. Um, 
actually here in Vermont, refugee families or individuals can be enrolled in one of three cash assistance programs when they arrive. So those are short-term um, programs that um, help them make ends meet in the process of looking for jobs um, and getting their feet wet here. Um, and which program families or individuals fall under really depends on their family composition and their employment eligibility. Um, and only one of the three programs actually allows for one parent in a two-parent household to stay home. Um, so this is a program that people sometimes fall into if they have a newborn. The Badaya, Hafeji, and Jean East article I mentioned earlier gives some suggestions of how to improve the system. Women refugees from Africa might also benefit from social policies that allow for easier and longer-term access to public assistance, which will afford them additional time for building skill sets in English, job skills training, professional certification, and education. In implementing refugee policy, when the lived experiences of war and gender-based violence are acknowledged, women need to be given options for trauma-based services and case management before expectations of securing employment are imposed. Provisions for culturally appropriate mental health services are a priority. In addition, since employment mandates will likely not change, employment options that honor the traditions, cultural expectations, and spiritual practices of women from Africa need to be considered. Examples of opportunities for women refugees from Africa might include women's urban farming, child care cooperatives, or selling handmade products. Vermont has several organizations that do provide refugees with alternative ways of being self-sufficient. One such organization is AALV, Association of Africans Living in Vermont. I spoke with Theo Ratzabe, who is the assistant director and program manager there. It was started by a group of um, a few African refugees who had uh, resettled in Vermont. So they got together and uh, were there really as a support for each other. And then as the resettlement uh, program expanded, uh, it was very clear that uh, the needs also increased. Mm -hmm. So AELV incorporated to have the ability to help all refugees and immigrants, even though the name says Association of Africans Living in Vermont, uh, we now serve all the refugees and immigrants who resettle here. Initially, though, as you may know, they work with VRRP, and then when people need extended service beyond their time with VRRP, then they come to us until they feel self-sufficient. AALV provides comprehensive case management and various programming, such as pregnancy prevention for teenagers, domestic and sexual violence, alcohol and drug use, and other educational programs. Theo's daily work with a client could even be something like teaching someone to drive a car for the first time. So, um, you know, putting the person in the car for the first time and, you know, they are trying to figure it out. You are trying to teach them. You both don't know what the heck you are doing. And, you know, you, you are supposed to tell them, put your brakes, to put your foot on the brakes. 
and then they accelerate right and you are both screaming <laughs> and then you know after six months they walk in and they show you their driver's license you're like wow that was worth the risk <laughs> that's crazy wow i do some crazy stuff too thinking about too? it yeah <laughs> Oh, my insurance company. <laughs> Thank God nothing has happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One very successful program that AALV runs is a refugee agriculture program called New Farms for New Americans, which provides plots of land for farmers who have come to the U.S. as refugees or immigrants who want to continue their traditional farming practices. Currently, the program has about 170 individuals with multiple generations farming on the same plot of land. I asked Alicia Laramie, the director of the program, how it got started. I was really curious to see if it was a need that AALV saw in the community or if refugees had come to them seeking this type of program. Well, so this predates my time here, but I, uh, my understanding is that it was um, sort of a collaborative effort and in the initiative of the person that um, was my predecessor, where she had been involved with refugee resettlement in a couple of different capacities. And one of the things that she was seeing is that there were people that were not able to find regular employment, uh, particularly women, uh, because they had children and that made it difficult to have two people out of the home and find childcare. Also just sort of culturally very different to send your children off to someone else to watch your kids for the day. So uh, women that had agrarian backgrounds and wanted to do that but lacked access to transportation as well and so Initially, it just began as an opportunity for women to come together, to farm together, garden. One woman would watch the other woman's children down at the garden while the others would garden and they would sort of rotate and take turns and all of that. And so that's how it began. And that initial uh, initial program was the um, just sort of the drive to apply for more funding that then created a much larger and robust program with lots of different offerings. Not only does this initiative provide an opportunity for new Vermonters to contribute to their household in a way that reflects their life experiences, but the program also provides an option for refugees to reconnect with their roots and eat foods that are culturally significant. That's probably the most important thing, I think, Farmers will say that as well, that it's being able to grow food that's familiar to them, even though they no longer have a place that is their home or land that they own, um, that being able to do that and make sure that their children and grandchildren know those foods and those crops is really what the majority of people are trying to do here that work with this program. It is clear that many factors are challenging during the initial resettlement in Vermont, and certain steps can and are being taken to make that process easier for people. Other barriers to integration that my interviewees said were high cost of living in Burlington, 
lack of an advanced public transportation system, and few international grocery stores like the ones that you might find in Boston or New York. Culture shock and cultural adjustment to Vermont, if it occurs, is going to be different for each refugee based on their age, race, language skills, and level of education, and how much help is available to them to get them through the process. Our next storyteller, Fett, delves into more of the challenging nuances of cultural adjustment. Pit Longsai Gail Manivan, and my job title is Community Development Specialist for Public Engagement for the City of Burlington with the Community and Economic Development Office. Fett was part of a massive refugee exodus from Laos into Thailand in 1975, following the end of the war in Southeast Asia that the U.S. took part in, unsuccessfully, to deter the spread of communism. Between 1979 and 1981, the number of Laotians entering the U.S. increased dramatically due to international attention given to the hardship Indo-Chinese refugees were going through. Before 1980 Refugee Act, though, refugees were mainly sponsored by church groups that offered host families to refugees to stay with until they became um, economically independent. Uh, I was originally born in Laos, a country in Southeast Asia, and we fled out of Laos when I was about a year old. I was born in in 1975, and we fled out in 1976 to um, across the Mekong River to Thailand, and uh, that was during the Vietnam War, the height of it, and my dad and mom and I lived in the refugee camps in Thailand for three years. Um, During that time, my sister was born. Uh, So we stayed until 1980, and we were able to be sponsored by some families through a church, a local church in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, and we were sponsored by three families that um, brought us over here in 1981. Uh, My sister was one. I was uh, five years old, and uh, we relocated together as a family my dad, mom, um, little sister, and I in St. Johnsbury, where I grew up in Vermont um, and lived here through my youth. And what do you remember, if anything, from your early childhood? Uh, I was pretty young. I don't really remember a lot of, about the refugee camps, you know, like I was about two, three, or four. I do remember some some images of playing with friends and um, and a lot of different um, people around. Um, we, it, I remember going to um, go fishing a lot with um, my friends, and um, and so um, that wasn't something that was really vivid in my mind. I do remember the plane ride to America. Um, I wasn't allowed to 
sit with my family. For some reason, they put me somewhere else, um, and it was pretty scary. I actually went under the seat, and um, and the um, stewardess had to come and, um, and ha- sit with me, and I remember getting off the plane, and when we landed in St. Johnsbury, it was it was January, so it was cold. So that was a big shock because we've never seen snow, and um, and so yeah, that was definitely a lot of just to take in for myself and my parents, and everything was really new to us because um, Laos is uh, a very develop. It's a developing country, and so. You know, there was like not a lot of modern um, technology, such as electricity and running water, that was um, that we had access to. So, all of that was really new and fascinating. The cars really scared me. I remember just being really scared of cars. And um, and yeah, it was it was definitely a um, a big change for like my parents, so the fact that they were um, unsure and and scared themselves made an impression on me since they were my parents. And what was it like living in a place where most of your neighbors were white families who had lived in Vermont for many years? Yeah, I yeah, it was definitely something that I thought about a lot just because even though I knew there was like, you know, um other like Lao families and my parents always like um made regular trips to Boston and Connecticut um to go get um to go get like um food, you know, at the markets before they had like um ethnic markets in Vermont. Um there was a few families, too, that um, lived in Springfield, Vermont, and Burlington, Vermont, so we'd make trips there. Um, So that's something where I I definitely had a strong identity with, like, my culture, but being um, that we were the only um, family that not only were we a different color, but we also had a different country, and um, so we had different values and practices and lens, it was really, uh, it was really alienating for both my, my parents and I, um, you know, it was hard to adjust, even though we had fam, we had like a strong, um, uh, sponsorship. Um, I think a lot of it was difficult because of always trying to fit in and, um, feeling that we weren't, like the norm or seen as normal and that like yeah that puts a strain on your your confidence and um and you do like wish you were born white or you wish you were born like normal and so that's something that really um resonated with with me for a long time especially you know being a kid and then also having to take care of um my parents around translations or having to explain things just because, you know, they, um, they had a, they had a longer time to culture, like longer and difficult time to acculturate since they were a little bit 
older where kids can acculturate quicker into the into their um their community so um so yeah i think that that's something that really um affected um my whole family and um and over time you know you just and um and like i said when we uh were older like when i was in high school there was a opportunity for me to um really be a be appreciative of like the fact that my parents were um staying in Vermont and staying in um in St. Johnsbury because you know there was a lot of stability and opportunities for for me where I wouldn't have been able to have that if we were to leave and move to um a city so i think that you know um that's that's one of the reasons why um i look back at my the challenges i've had in in my family um too and you can be you can be proud of like you know what you've gone through instead of like um of um hiding it mentions a lot of different challenges here. There is a challenge of being racially and culturally different, as well as having a generational gap in language acquisition between parents and kids in refugee families. The book Making Refugee, Somali Bantu Refugees and Lewiston, Maine by Catherine Bestman highlights the challenges refugees face in navigating generational knowledge. Bestman describes that in Somali Bantu culture, elders are highly respected. Maintaining that hierarchy is challenging when elders must rely on their children who learn English in school and adapt more quickly to life in America. For my family, um, my parents um, was getting to know um, American culture uh because there's a lot of like um um difficulty around like um interpretations and in language and plus like for me I was a little kid so I may have like you know not been explaining it right um and then um it is where um people also relied on me too as a kid to explain things to my parents too so that was a lot of responsibility that i felt myself um as a kid and um and even like today you know as an adult i um like uh, i particularly for my father i do do a lot of even though he speaks um english and he's been here for 30 years there's still that um lost in translation so he will say yes to everything um if people explain stuff but it may be really complex that he's just getting pieces of it 
So I think that that's a piece of where it's difficult, especially with um, uh, folks who are um, coming here and, you know, they speak a different language and um, in their language, even if it gets translated, it may mean something else or it may like have a different significance in, in um, practice or culture. It is clear that language can be much more than just a method of communication. It is also a way of life and a particular viewpoint through which we see and interpret the world. All of these stories highlight the independence and the feeling of having control over your own life depends on many factors beyond finding a steady job. The article, Being a Refugee University Student, a Collaborative Autoethnography, by our student Kathleen Kendall and Lawrence Day, describes the experience of one refugee trying to integrate into a new country. This article highlights how refugees' sense of independence and agency often changes within different contexts and physical spaces in the place where they are being resettled. He was embedded in a web of relationships and structures that subjugated and enabled. His agency was thus informed by and situated within interactions and social forces in particular moments and places. Agency is thus shown to be not an inherent characteristic, but rather something that is deeply informed by material constraints, the top-down influence of powerful individuals and institutions, and the shaping effects of neoliberal economic practices. So, if we consider this excerpt in the context of Vermont, a refugee could feel a certain amount of agency when shopping, say, at an Asian grocery store, where they know which foods to buy, um, but at the same time, same refugee could feel very limited and dependent when trying to navigate the Burlington bus schedule and having confidence knowing which bus to take home. Bestman's book about Somali Bantu families in Maine shows how traditional values of communal living could potentially clash with American values of individual independence. For people who prioritize community life and social networks over individualism, self-sufficiency means community independence rather than individual economic autonomy, and integration does not mean abandoning their values. Self-sufficiency thus means cultural autonomy to handle matters within their own community, but not necessarily economic autonomy. Baseman describes that for this Somali Bantu community, economic resources were often shared between families and across individuals. Whoever had money would pay the restaurant bill. People would go on bulk food shopping trips together, share cars and childcare responsibilities across families. Ultimately, there is no one universal experience of initial resettlement or adjustment. As Theo says, I think, you know, ultimately this is the thing. People come here looking for um, a place where they can call home, safe space for their children, where they can raise families without any fear, uh, a place where, you know, they can have basics, water, 
uh, food, shelter. Uh, so I think pretty much that's what people come here looking for. And then looking at ways of how can I contribute? You know, I'm looking for a job. It's going to be somebody's way of contributing to the community. Or if they can't find a job yet, you know, I'm looking to learn English. How can I do that? Or how can I volunteer? You helped me a few years ago when I came here. Now I want to give back to the community. So needs vary, but I think overall people are looking for stability. However, you know, individuals define that. Right? But it's very basic. Shelter, water, food and safe place to call home. And from the refugees I spoke with, I really think Vermont is that place where people have found stability and safety. When I was in Vermont recently, I spoke to several former clients who really spoke highly of the community in Vermont. So a lot of resettled refugees, of course, they have family all across the United States because they have people who were maybe resettled in Texas and people who were resettled in Ohio. And um, all of those refugees, I'm sure, have varying experiences. But one thing I noticed is that the resettled refugees I talked to were just so grateful for the welcome they received in Vermont and for the enthusiasm from Vermont community members for them being in the state, in their neighborhood, in their community. So many community members in Vermont open their homes, open their hearts, open their um, closets to donate things to refugees or to help them navigate their new lives in the United States. And I have to say, I'm sure that happens in other communities, but there's something special that happens in Vermont. And I think it's this enthusiasm for not just helping people, but for providing refugees with the tools they need to help themselves um, so that, you know, they can really shine on their own in this community. Amir sums up his experience of resettling in the U.S. this way. From that point on, I felt like, okay, I can, I can see myself living here. You never feel at home, but... You know, but if you ask me what my home right now is, it's the United States, it's Burlington. Even though I feel Bosnian strongly, uh, I would say this is my, this is my country, this is my home. for listening today and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. Don't forget to like, share, or comment on this episode. I always appreciate your feedback. This podcast was created and produced by your host, Tilden Reamerleach. The intro music for the show was created and produced by Edward James. The production of this show received funding from the University of Vermont's College of Arts and Sciences Apple Award and the 4 Mini Grant. 
Other music featured in this episode includes Hometown by Ryan Little, Funky Chunk by Kevin McLeod, Starting Over by Audio Binger, Siesta by Jazar, Don't Go by Puddington Bear, and Enthusiast by Tor.